Good morning. So good to have all these Oak Parkers here. I feel like we're going to have a church service. Right? This is great. So thank you for coming. I feel right at home on many levels, whether it's boys or Southern, and now my dear church family, thank you for coming. Do you want to begin by saying thank you to Dr. Moeller, Dr. Aiken, the deans and associate deans for this sacred trust. I do believe this. These aren't throwaway words. This is a sacred trust. As we embark upon, think about why we're here, this most audacious exercise, and what is it? Hearing a word from the Lord. I mean, why did you come to chapel today? I hope you came to hear a word from the Lord. That's audacious. John Calvin said many worthwhile things. Here's what he said, commenting on 1 Timothy 3, 2, and that little phrase for a, a, an elder has to be able to teach. And what did he think that meant? For St. Paul does not mean that one should just make a parade here or that a man should show off so that everyone applauds him and says, oh, well-spoken, oh, what a breadth of learning, oh, what a subtle mind. All that is beside the point. When a man has climbed up into the pulpit, is it so that he may be seen from afar, that he may be preeminent? Not at all. It is the God who speaks to us by the mouth of a man. And he does us that favor. See, God is so kind. He does us this favor of presenting himself here and wishes a mortal man to be his messenger, end quote. That's crazy, but that's what's happening when we take up the word of God, which means we must pray again for God's blessing on this event that this mortal man would be God's messenger. Makes me choke, so let's pray. Hmm. Oh, Father in heaven, would I be that for you this morning, your messenger? What an audacious request that I would stand before your people and proclaim your word. Oh God, would you guard me from error? Would you lead us all into truth? Would you give me all the grace I need? Would you give me your spirit that I might proclaim the truth of Romans 5, 1 and 2? Oh God, we need you. I need you to preach and we all need you that we would have ears to hear. So we give you these minutes with great expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. wonder if you know <clears throat> this band, excuse me. Perhaps no band gave clearer expression to the angst and hopelessness of Gen X, my generation, so I'm dating myself, Generation X, and perhaps no band gave clearer expression to the angst and hopelessness of Gen X than Linkin Park, do you know? I wonder if Linkin Park's ever been mentioned in this pulpit, I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, songs like In the End or Castle of Glass and, and Numb <clears throat> catalog their take on the painful and nihilistic nature of life. Have you listened to those lyrics? 
But in 2007, at least one song seemed to offer a solution. So they weren't always just full of angst and hopelessness. This song seemed to offer a solution. What song? What I've done with its anthem of self-justification. Let me read you some of the lyrics. I won't sing it, but here's what it said in part. I'll face myself to cross out what I've become, erase myself and let go of what I've done. For what I've done, I start again. And whatever pain may come, today this ends. I'm forgiving what I've done. You hear that, and you might think there's a solution there, but there really isn't. This solution is really no solution at all because I cannot cross out what I've become. I cannot erase myself, and I certainly cannot forgive what I've done. I can't do any of that. We live in a world, though, don't we, of people who are trying to justify themselves. All over us, we see people trying to justify themselves. Whether they know it or not, this I know on the authority of Scripture, whether whether they know it or not, they are trying to make themselves righteous before God. And they might not phrase it that way. They might not think that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. They're trying to clean themselves up, erase themselves, forgive themselves, start over, saying, declaring, today it ends. I'm going to be different. I'm going to put to to death the old me. Something, they they, they know something there that they need, there's something that needs to be done. But we live in a world full of self-justifiers, those trying to make themselves righteous before God. In other words, I'm going to say the right things. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to feel the appropriate shame. I'm even going to forgive myself or reinvent myself so I'm finally worthy of heaven. That's what's happening all around us. A bunch of people trying to self-justify, make themselves righteous before God. Now closer to home here in the church or in Christianity, Jesus warns us about this tragic effort at self-justification. I think worldly thinking does creep into the church, doesn't it, if we're not careful? But Jesus warns us about self-justifying in Matthew 7 and elsewhere. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, there's going to be many that say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But didn't I? But didn't I? I mean, look at my resume, God. Depart from me. I never knew you. On the day of judgment, self-justifiers will parade before God all their efforts at justification and proudly say, in essence, you're welcome, Lord. Here you go, you're welcome. But this hubris will be their undoing, for they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. They've deemed the sacrifice of Christ unworthy of their embrace. Therefore, what awaits self-justifiers 
is not the blessing of God, but only wrath and indignation, what the author of Hebrews calls a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume its adversaries. It's really serious. These efforts at self-justification will only end in wrath and fury. So what do we need? We need a means of justification that does not lead to wrath but leads to blessing. And this we have in the gospel. Isn't that good news? We have a gospel that doesn't lead to wrath, but leads to blessing. And my prayer for this sermon is that we would see the wonder of God's gift of justification and be more determined than ever to live in this amazing grace. So to that end, I invite you to turn with me to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, let me read them to get them out before us, and these two verses will make up the remainder of our minutes. Paul's been talking about justification. He's really enamored with it. He says in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, there's a context here and we can pick it up here in verse one with the therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. As I mentioned, Paul has been talking about justification. Here we're introduced to perhaps the greatest word in the Bible, justification. And why would this be perhaps the greatest word in the Bible? Because God's justification of sinners is our gateway to glory. All of God's blessings flow through the gate of justification. You want to be blessed by God, you got to go through the door of justification. You got to go through that gate. That's where blessing comes through justification. All of God's blessings. In Romans 1 to 4, again, quick context, the Apostle Paul had been building the case for people's need to be justified before God, given his absolute holiness and our utter sinfulness. He's been making that case. You know the book of Romans. We could sum it up in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, we're, we're among sinners I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The verb justify occurs 39 times in the New Testament. Do you realize I did some math for you? Of those 39 times, Paul is responsible for 27 of its uses. And in the book of Romans alone, he uses the word 15 times. Clearly, this is a very important word to Paul, the word is a forensic or legal term, meaning to acquit. It is the normal Greek word used when an accused person is declared not guilty. That's what we so desperately need to be declared not guilty. We need that verdict over us if we would enter into blessing and not remain under wrath. But Paul, to be clear, makes it clear 
that justification is not something we can do for ourselves. Lincoln Park is wrong. It's something that God does for us. He's been making this case. He talks about our inability, right, in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And he's saying it's in and through Jesus Christ, not through our efforts. In Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And finally, we read in Romans 4.5 that it's on the basis of faith. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, the righteousness God demands from us that we so desperately need and do not have, he gives to us freely as a gift to be received by faith. That's been his argument up until Romans 5 here. He's been making this case. We need the righteousness of Christ. And this he offers us in the gospel. Well, here we are now, more specifically in Romans 5. And what's Paul doing here? He's, he's moving from justification and, and defining it and really our need for it and he's moving into the effects or implications or blessings that accompany our justification, or we could say that flow from our justification. And that's what I want us to see, these three blessings that he says are a result of our justification. Here they are, the blessing of peace, the blessing of grace, and the blessing of hope. Let's take each one of these. In turn, first, blessing of our justification, the blessing of peace. Do you see it there in verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here it is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Because of our justification, we now have peace with God. The basic meaning of peace here has to do with reconciliation, reconciliation with God. And he'll get into this beginning in verse 12 or verse 10. For if we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we have peace with God because we've been reconciled to God. The peace of justification is the reality of God's righteous wrath against us being removed. That's really good news, that we've had the wrath of God removed. It's on us, apart from Christ. In justification, he removes it from us. We are no longer, in other words, objects of God's displeasure, but objects of his favor. In other words, not only wrath removed, but God's favor restored because of Christ. Through justification, think of it this way, two parties that were at tremendous odds are now brought together in a relationship of harmony. In the gospel, the God of the universe, whose wrath was against us, has declared amnesty for rebellious sinners like us. Now, how could this be? How could he do that? How could he declare amnesty? We're no longer at war. 
I no longer have wrath and fury for you, but favor. How could this happen? How could this be? Well, it's all because of Christ, right? It's what Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah 53, verse 5, when he said, upon him, that is Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. Peace. Or in Colossians chapter 1, here's how Paul says it there. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that is in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Oh, what a gospel. At Calvary, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and thereby put sin away for all those who would believe. Oh, Christian, at the cross, divine vengeance gave way to divine love for you. That's why we sing, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Do you wonder at this? Some of you don't. I'm just going to go out of limb. I think some of you, you're not moved by this. You hear this talk of peace with God and reconciliation with God. And there's part of you that's just, here we go again, ho-hum. The objection sounds something like this. The talk of peace with God doesn't move me. Why don't I feel this peace? I hear talk of sins forgiven, reconciliation with God, wrath removed. And if I'm honest, it just doesn't move me. Got a paper to write. Got books to read. How much longer is he going to go? I worry that some of you have an objection like that welling up in your heart. This doesn't move me. Wonder why? Let me suggest a reason. Part of the reason has to do with evangelicalism's hesitancy to talk about the holiness and wrath of God. I just won't talk about it enough. Instead of proclaiming a God who has righteous indignation against sin, we peddle a God who is simply hurt by our transgressions and wishes we would try harder. Instead of proclaiming a God whose wrath is even now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, we talk of a God who sits on the sidelines of this world powerless to act against evil. Instead of proclaiming a God who will judge the living and the dead, we offer the world a domesticated God who does our bidding and will eventually allow everyone into heaven. I think we have a lot of functional universalists in evangelicalism today. We just kind of think it's all going to work out. Everyone will ultimately get to heaven, right? Brothers and sisters, if you want to feel the peace of God that is yours through justification, then you must behold the God of the Bible in the fullness of his attributes, not just the ones this fallen world finds culturally acceptable. Our experience of peace with God, in other words, is a doctrine of God issue. The more God looks like one of us, the less we will feel the marvel, the astonishment, the wonder of peace with God. In other words, is your God so small that talk of reconciliation with him 
just doesn't move you. Oh God, give us a vision of you that is in line with Isaiah's vision. You remember that? In Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, not a, not a little chair, but he was sitting on a throne and he was high, lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I, I said, when I saw this God, I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is that the vision of God you have? Because if you don't, I get it. You won't be moved by talk of peace with God. But when you see him, in his majestic glory. And then you think to yourself, me? Amazing love. How can it be that he would die for me, wretch that I am? And peace with God becomes such a precious thing to you. It's the anchor for your soul when everything's moving on you in this fallen world. You know, I am right with God. I have peace with him. He's not against me. He's for me. This God who sits on a throne. Well, this leads us to the second blessing that I want you to see as an implication or result of your justification. It's the blessing of grace. These are related, but they are different. So it's a blessing of grace. Look with me at verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith. Well, access to what? Well, into this grace in which we stand. Here we encounter the astounding reality of the believer's access into an ongoing relationship with Christ. God's redeeming work ushers us into a whole new realm or dominion, one of God's grace or favor in the presence of Christ. It's Romans 6, 14, right, where Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law anymore. Through justification, you're under grace. Or in Colossians 1, Paul talks about this deliverance. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So here we were in this domain of darkness, but he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. There's been this, this deliverance that results in a transfer from one domain, a domain of darkness, sin, death, wrath, fury, to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where you now reside, Christian, forever. There's a great implication of our standing in grace. This is what came to me as I thought on this text, God's favor all the time. Can I make it that simple? Oh, Christian, God's favor all the time. It's Psalm 23, 6, right? Surely goodness and mercy is going to pursue us how often? <laughs> all the days of our life. We walk by faith, not by sight. I know on the authority of God's word, goodness and mercy is chasing me down every day, 
every day I breathe. So we could say it this way, wherever I go, I'm in the realm of God's grace. So there's Southern grace, Boyce grace, Louisville grace, Jeff grace, New Albany grace, St. Matthew's grace, Middletown grace, any nation grace. As children of God, we are swimming in an ocean of grace. We can't get out of it everywhere we go. Some of you moved here to go to school and you wondered, is my faith going to be the same or what's, God, what's it going to be like? I'm so used to it. I did all my growth back home down in Tennessee or wherever you're from. He's the same God for you here and you haven't got out of his grace. You can't, Christian. So wherever I go, I'm in that realm of God's grace. I'm standing in it. I've gained access by faith into this grace in which I stand. So not only wherever I go, but whatever I do, Wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm in the realm of God's grace. That means there's marriage grace, parenting grace, singleness grace, cancer grace, aging grace, work grace, unemployment grace, ministry grace, sin grace. Whoa. You were with me maybe until I said sin grace. How can I say even when I sin, I'm standing in grace. Let me respect the objection that might come here. You preach like this, Mike, and gotta be careful. This kind of teaching will lead to abuse, won't it? I mean, you preach this radical grace and it will breed licentiousness. I mean, be careful, we're gonna have antinomians everywhere. It's running around. Sin, grace. Romans 6 is where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Says. So let me address the objection this way. If you believe the grace of God is license for you to sin, that tells me you don't understand the gospel. You, you just don't understand the gospel and you need to understand the gospel. Knowing that you, Christian, are standing in grace should motivate you to kill sin in your life. The grace of God is not license for sin, but power against sin. And because we stand in grace, we have the assurance that as we fight our indwelling sin, as we seek to mortify the flesh, and we will lose a battle from time to time, we have an ever-present advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who pleads for us, who prays for us, who has told us he will save us to the uttermost. You're standing in grace. There's one more. There's another blessing. It's a blessing of peace. There's a blessing of grace. And now there's the blessing of hope. See it here in verse two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope, what does it mean here? It means a sure confidence, a sure 
confidence. This is not mere wishful thinking, like the world thinks of hope. It's just kind of wishful thinking. I sure hope it works out. Oh, it'd be great, I, ho- I hope. But that's not how Paul talks. That's not what he means here. Hope means a sure confidence. I would illustrate with Abraham, as Paul did in Romans 4, as a great illustration of a sure confidence, a hope that has bedrock under it. Remember in verse 18 of Romans 4, he says, in hope he believed, this is, he's talking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. See, there was a word from the Lord. The Lord had said it. So he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, there it is, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's Christian hope. Rejoicing in God doing what he's promised. We believe it. We don't waver in unbelief. We have a hope that is solid and sure. We have a sure confidence. Well, in what? According to this text, back to Romans 5, the glory of God. What does that mean? We hope in the glory of God. The believer knows, in spite of how the world looks, that there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return in majestic glory. We know this. This is something we've settled. Remember Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's a glory coming. Or in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's coming again in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This breathtaking display of the glory of God in Christ points to the consummation of our redemption. We rejoice knowing that what is now future will be realized. Is your eschatology really practical to you? I wonder. I mean, dispensationalists don't have a monopoly on eschatology. Come on. Right? This is really relevant to our daily living, to know that he's coming again in glory. He's going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to make every wrong right. He's going to wipe away every tears. Sin will be no more, right? In glory. Day's coming. This breathtaking display of the glory of God in Christ points us to to our consummation, our redemption. We rejoice knowing that what is now future is going to be realized. So we, we rejoice over texts like Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which are legion, but I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory that's going to be revealed to us. 
There's a glory coming, saint, and that coming glory is to infuse your thinking about suffering, really practical stuff like afflictions, suffering, trials. Paul seems to think the coming glory of Christ matters for how you handle those. Dr. Aiken alluded to this recently, just this month, in fact. It's so Wednesday, February 1st, my wife, Anna, uh, we had a biopsy and, and she, we got that awful news, it's cancer. Number of CT scans, a bone scan, blood work, now an operation, last week she had surgery to try to remove the cancer and we're hopeful that they were able to get it all, but I can tell you this, future glory really matters to how you handle cancer. Through tears, we reminded and have reminded and will continue to remind ourselves of Psalm 103. He's healed all our diseases. I mean, ultimately, at Calvary, he took it on himself. There's coming a day when cancer will be no more. I know that. I have a bedrock confidence in the coming glory of Christ where we will receive the goal of our faith, right? The salvation of our souls. It's really practical. It's also practical, not just for our suffering, but for how we live and, and our efforts to live a holy life. Let me bring Peter into this conversation in 1 Peter 1.13. Listen to how practical his eschatology is for living. He says in verse 13 of chapter one, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope there. There's a coming glory. There's a grace that's gonna come with that glory. We're gonna be partakers of his divine nature. We already are, but we'll, be, we'll share in his glory in some mysterious way. Okay. We're gonna become like him because we're gonna see him as he is, right? Day's coming, and, and Peter says that's really practical. So prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on this future grace that's coming. It's gonna be revealed when Christ returns, this revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm gonna pick up on this phrase Peter uses, sober-minded. See, it's a sober-minded person that sets her hope on this future glory, this future grace. So that tells me to not be doing that, what does that mean? You're not sober-minded. You're drunk, right? You're not thinking clearly. See, the world is intoxicated with now. Right? See, the Bible's constantly thrusting us forward, looking future. But I, I get it, it's, it's very otherworldly thinking, the Bible is, right? Spoiler alert, I mean, you knew that. The world is intoxicated with now. We see it, for example, in sports with talk of contracts and getting paid and getting your bag. It's all about now. I gotta get paid, I gotta get my contract. We see it in the growth of sports betting and the lottery, right? I gotta get my bag now. It's not just for athletes, right? 
We see it in the crypto world where Ponzi schemes make and then lose billions. It's the functional philosophy of eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But a Christian, in contrast to the world, is sober-minded. We're not drunk on now. We're sober-minded with a hope set fully on a grace that's coming when Jesus Christ returns in glory. When you think like this, when you're sober-minded, you will sing from the heart, you can have all this world. You can have all this world. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Well, let me close by reminding us what we already know. We live in a world full of people who are trying to justify themselves. Whether they know it or not, they are trying to make themselves righteous before God. But what awaits self-justifiers? Not the blessing of God, but only wrath and indignation. That's what awaits self-justifiers. So we need a means of justification that does not lead to wrath, but leads to blessing. And this we have in the gospel. The glorious good news of how God in Christ justifies the ungodly and ushers us into blessings forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for such a great salvation. And I beg of you to not let us leave here neglecting it in any way. But, oh, Lord, may we long to live still more holy, more devotedly in the blessings of our justification. Oh, God, we give you praise and pray that our hope would be set on such solid ground that we would be a people that shine forth the hope of true justification to a world that is so desperate, we see it, it's so desperate to be justified. But they need to know of their Savior. And so God, help us, help us to be living, breathing examples of what it means to be justified. And give us words to speak when people ask us for a reason, for the hope that is obviously in us. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.